you know, for, for me, there's been so many people ahead of me that have made my situation so much easier. And I think that that is what pride's all about, right? Is thanking those people. Welcome to episode 24 of the Outfield Podcast. I wanted to do more Pride episodes this month, but I think having this guest on will make the wait worth it. Uh, Lori Lindsay, truly one of the best out there, I think. You've been hustling this last month, last couple weeks, actually. Yeah, I mean, um, you're not wrong about that. I, I, I never think of it as hustling. <laughs> um but I think of it as like amazing and fun work. And sometimes there's like ebbs and flows of like, you got a lot more assignments than not. And then other times vice versa. So just depending on the time of the year. Right. And we all know there's a lot of the summer of soccer, I should say. So I, I feel that I feel that I haven't had any games in a while and I miss it dearly. Particularly love talking about soccer on any platform, let alone calling games, which I have done. We'll save that for later. Um, Lori, of course, is amazing. She has been everywhere. You've heard her now on, what, multiple ESPN broadcasts and an MWSL broadcast on CBS. That's pretty good in the last, you know, two weeks, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was just talking with somebody, I think it was yesterday, just saying how this last week and a half has been amazing, um, just in the fact that I had a women's national team game, one of their last games, the first game at Q2 Stadium down in Austin, then turned around and had a CBS NWSL game. And then, as you would know, Matt, um, on Saturday, the ESPN game of Kansas, um, Kansas City versus LAFC. So, um, yeah, amazing, so fun, different platforms, different um, high level across the board and just, like, tons of different teams. And just uh, I'm so grateful and love it. I could, spend an, I could spend an hour with you just talking about broadcasting as somebody who does – you know this for a living i don't want to spend the entire time doing that because there's so much else to get to with you and speaking of that i i would be remiss if i didn't mention that this is the first podcast i've recorded or anything i've done since uh, carl nassib came out so i should want to say off the top that that is pretty amazing and i don't want to spend the entire podcast talking about that either because that's not fair to you but i mean it's been a week since it happened and it's still kind of stunning that it just happened out of nowhere and for people who say it wasn't a big deal my Instagram that I use is basically a messaging service for this podcast, and that's about mm -hmm. it. But I do check people's stories, and if there was an out athlete or somebody I know, you know, in this space, everyone talked about it. So, no, it's still a big deal even for people like us who, for this is our lives. You know, this is, it was a huge deal, and I, I don't think, you know, people undersold that when they say it was a big deal. I think it was a bigger deal because it just sort of happened out of nowhere. There weren't any greasing the wheels. Well, and also, you know, when you think about how many anti-trans bills are still going on um, or are currently happening, I, what is it, 250 um, anti-trans bills across the U.S., you have um, no other out NFL players. Um, why is that, right? Clearly, there's fear across the board still. And so when somebody has the courage to be able to come out, and yeah, you know, I know for myself, um, I, I've talked about this openly as and Megan Rapino, we both have um, how grateful we are with for our path to be able to come out publicly and what that's been like in terms of the support. But that is not the case for so many. And so anytime that somebody um, who's in the 
in the public eye um, as Carl is, then 100%. It is a huge deal, and it's needed, and it's needed every single day. So anybody who's telling you it's not um, is just is missing missing the point. I think it's because you know, for us, we we get it, we see it, and you know, for somebody coming out at that level, like. I think when I looked at his Instagram the first time afterward, he had 14,000 followers. Now it's like 600,000. Yeah. Post is like 700,000. <laughs> like, tell me that doesn't matter. I mean, in- Instagram is what it is. But yeah. It's, and for you, and this is the last we'll get to this, and then we're going to focus on you more in the end uh, because I don't want this to be an entirely podcast and that I will do something more on in the future, of course. Desperately would love to interview him, obviously. For you, as somebody who's gone through that, to see that, uh, what do you think and you're going through, other than the, obviously the great joy, you're going through re- seeing what people are saying and seeing the response to it as somebody who has come out at such a high level already. How do you, I, I've always wondered, how does people who have gone through it at that high level see go, somebody else in that situation? Oh, well, I'm ecstatic. I'm ecstatic for that person individually, even if I don't know them, um, because they're living their truth. And, and you know, the, the thing about, Pride, even Pride Month, and it just, that just so happened for Carl that it was during this month, um, and, and maybe that was planned. I have no clue. It doesn't seem like it, right? Um, it was just like this feels the right the right time for him. Um, but there, you know, for for me, there's been so many people ahead of me that have made my situation so much easier, and I think that that is what Pride's all about, right? Is thanking those people. My mom is a lesbian. Um, you know, came out when I was really young and to be able to have that as a role model model for somebody that growing up in Indiana at a really time in the eighties where, um, absolutely not, you were not coming out because that was not, especially when you had kids, right. Um, that was going to be a really tough situation, but there was no other way for my mom. And so for me to see that, for me to have those role models and it's just a huge, like, thank you to the people that have paved the way before, and so, and, you know, and, and I don't want to like give myself credit, but I hope that some ways um, I provide that for other people, right? And to say, hey, yes, like we are here to be unapologetic um, about who we are. It, as cliche as it sounds, it does get better and easier. And um, listen, like let's, let's live our truths. Let's um, be who we are and celebrate that. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure... Carl has found that in somebody um, and other people and as much as I have myself, I guess is the best way to say it. Well, I apologize because that was great, but I just watched Switzerland score in France. I apologize <laughs> if I interrupt no, this perfect. at any point to go, oh my God, soccer things happen. We're recording this today of Croatia, Spain, which was the drunkest soccer game you'll ever see at a major tournament knockout stage and then France losing to Switzerland. So I apologize if I interrupt at any point for that. Because uh, Lori's no, obviously watching it too. That, you know, I think that that makes this podcast actually, because you and I both who love soccer as well. I'm just like, I mean, yeah. I normally if it's a game like this, I'm not going to record during it because I want to focus on the on the match. But boy, I mean that that was I mean poor Clement Longay like just got dunked on. Anyway, I apologize. <laughs> 
Well, well, well. And and to be honest, I didn't even check the schedule. I was just checking my own to be able to like figure out, okay, when can I? I'd already like messed up our schedule from before, so I was like, okay, let me just give you the best time. Not even thinking that'd be during the Euros, which is wild. So thank you for taking the time. It I is. Say. It is the first. It is not the first time I've recorded during games, and sometimes people who have listened to my other podcasts will know I will interrupt if something weird happens in sport. <laughs> in this, in this, as it happens, and so that is something that is bizarre. Anyway, uh, so in terms of just talking about you, I mean, where do we begin with with your story? I mean, you you've been to a World Cup. You were an alternate at an Olympics. You one of the part of a, a great generation of players, and now you're one of the more preeminent broadcasters, not just in, just soccer general, particularly the women's game. So where do you want to start? Oh my goodness! Um, anywhere, really, whatever you're most interested in. I mean. I've lived it, so I know the story really well in all the all you, you have. <laughs> I, I, I want you to. I want to start by getting you to look back. I guess, considering where you are now, and go back to some of the the tougher times you had in your own process in mm-hmm. coming out and becoming the best version of yourself. And you look at where you are now, and what you're doing now, and how prominent you are now, and how much you've been doing. What's that? What does that journey feel like for you, looking back on it from the lowest point to where you are? Yeah. uh, You know, like I said, for me, the coming out process was, you know, I don't want to say much smoother than others um, because everyone has their own unique um, path. However, for me, again, to be able to have a gay mom, gay moms, I should say, um, and to be able to see that in front of me as like a role model that made that process so much easier. And so my whole life, I kind of laugh and say has been gay because I lived with my dad and stepmom. Yes. With my brother and stepsister. However, we would go to my mom's every other weekend and we were attending pride parades. I was surrounded by adult lesbians my entire life in Indiana growing up. So that was like the actual norm. So, uh, for me, then that whole evolution was just really about me um, getting comfortable with myself in that maturation process. It wasn't more of like, oh goodness, like I don't, um, I don't know what these feelings are that I'm having. It was more just like, okay, how am I going to get comfortable? Because when I was younger, it was uh, the goal was like, I'm getting out of Indiana, and nothing to do with Indiana. It was just like, I want to take my soccer as far. like as far as it can go and to me that meant traveling that mean getting on the national team and so I was like I am going to go as far as I can and nothing's going to stop me and so at that time it was just like you know sexuality was not an afterthought by any means early on it was just like well I'm not going to come out publicly um, until you know I feel like ready I guess I don't know how to explain that but um and then, you know, I did. And then I was I was very out. I was never um, not out, really, in college. I came, like, it was public, teammates, everybody knew. Um, it was never a secret. And it was just mainly until I had a platform, um, actually right around the 2011 World Cup, 2012 Olympics, um, when uh, a publication of called Autostraddle was like, we would love to do an interview with you about coming out. And I was like, absolutely, let's do it. And, um, but across the board, long story short, as social media has come out and more prominent, like it has never been a secret. Right. So, um, so yeah, that was a long winded way to tell you that, but it is a, <laughs> it is a long winded way 
to to point that out, I guess. But let me. But I, I, there's so many angles of it because you came of age at a time when women's soccer in this country just the league structure. You went through the first league. We talked with Joanna Loman a couple months ago about mm-hmm. that discussion about coming of age at a time when the league system for women's soccer was exploding in a good way after the 99 World Cup, but it never caught on. And then, you know, now I look on it as somebody who sees the NWSL in the position that it is in now, which is incredibly strong. Yep. It's, it's amazing yeah. to think about that. And for you, and I think that journey is fascinating because you're part of that group that, you know, lived through everything, right? And there's a mm-hmm. whole group of women who are on this national team, and we'll talk about the Olympics shortly, this, this upcoming Olympic team, that were part of that group that now gets to see both, you know, the best of times and the worst of times when it comes to the domestic league in this country. And even in the middle of the decade, the women's team wasn't the all-destroying, you know, death star that it is now. So you, you've kind of seen the, the highs and lows of that relative to what U.S. women's soccer has been. Yeah, I mean, as one of the handful of players that played in all three of the leagues and just what what that was like with uh, WSA and the excitement around it and then just not being able to be sustainable, um, very much a similar aspect in the WPS. Um, and now with the NWSL and, and weathering some of the storms there and um, learning and getting to the point where you're bringing in San Diego next year, you're, you're bringing in Angel City. We had Louisville come in this season. So it's just the, the standard being raised and um, the level being raised and also just the be, getting having a league that just continues to chip away and become even more sustainable has just been <laughs> amazing, actually. Well, somebody pointed it out on Twitter just how, you know, how good the soccer is. And we just saw a weekend with five games in a day. And it is very good soccer, and it's hard to get a league started. I mean, every, you know, we take it for granted because a lot of the leagues in the U.S. are just, they've been there. They're like almost facts of life. But, you know, MLS went through its troubles and is now where it is. And, I, you know, it's not the same, obviously. But to go through what these women's leagues have gone through, and, and for somebody like you who went through, of course, a couple of them failing and the NWSL being in real danger earlier in this decade, and now mm-hmm. to see, you know, you're going to have 12 teams next year. One of them, Angel City, is is one I think we expect to be, you know, setting the pace in the league. I mean, the people involved, it should probably. You know, it's amazing to think about how close it came, but now how much better I think everyone is for getting, for you know, for getting this right. And how, how tricky it is and for somebody like you to be commentating on NWSL after going through all of it. You know, I think mm-hmm. those experiences are really important when we when we talk about the women's game in this country because – Going through those experiences, like, we, we shouldn't take it for granted how good it is now because it wasn't very good, you know, and there were times when we were really nervous about it in yeah. the past. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the um, the level of play has always been good, and that obviously continues to increase. Um, but, you know, it's it's exactly what we all keep saying, and I think what the the national team players, the players that are playing in this league say and, and also in the WNBA, we've seen those players speak out. It's exposure, right? You invest in the women's leagues, you invest in the players, then you will find an unbelievable product. And we just haven't seen that. And so now that what you're seeing is endorsements, you're seeing that investment, and you're seeing an unbelievable product that doesn't need to be um, you know, every year wondering or not if it's going to survive or not. Just put it on television so people can see this. And here you are. And, you know, and we're seeing that trans 
that that translate now to the NFL because we've always had that at the U.S. women's national team level. People go bonkers for that team. They love it. It's one of the most recognizable teams in the world, um, if not the most. And now that's starting to trickle down and spread out all across the, the 10 teams. I think it's because it, that initial explode. I mean, I was too young to remember the 99ers, but you know, I was only six, well, five, almost six at that point. But like, it was so hard to take that explosion and turn it into something that is tactile and could last. I think a mm -hmm. lot of it was just not knowing the best way to do it. And sometimes it takes a long time, you know, this yeah. evolving process. And I want to get to an evolving process too, which is as your journey, you know, in talking about your sexuality more publicly, there is the journey within that U.S. women's team. And I brought this up with Joanna Lohman, and, and it was Kim McCauley who tweeted it. The tweet's gone, but I remember it. On It was a, the day of the, the 2019, the, the I think it was the, 20, it was the 2019 final. But she was talking about how the evolution of going from the team that struggled to figure out how do we talk about our sexuality publicly to a team in that 2007 to a team in 2011 that, you know, you were on that team. It's hinted at that some of these things are, you know, are different as they seem. And then 2015, you see Abby Wambach with her partner after they win. And then 2019, you have Meg Rapinoe going, you can't win anything without gays. So it's an evolving mm -hmm. process there too. And it's a very interesting evolving process. I think looking back on it from not just a, a perspective from the, of the sport, but also perspective of how we've changed societally in like 12, 13 years to where we are now mm -hmm. too. Yeah, well, it's... Um... What's one of those things, too, that just goes back to being visible and being vocal? And as I said, with my mom and being a role model and all the people that um, came before her as well, um, that's what it's about. Every People coming out, and that's why Carl is so important, right? Because then you start to see younger football players that that are playing that are like, okay, this is okay, right? It's not that there's no gay football players that just don't feel comfortable in coming out. It's scary, and there's still fear around that around it so the more that you that we have people that are out publicly the better for everyone and you, we saw that little by little as you mentioned abby myself megan right and then the more and more um players are like okay yes and and, and for the most part women's soccer has been um a very welcoming um sport in that regard um and um and then you just hope that that continues throughout all it's tricky because when when people always compared like in terms of just a soccer to soccer comparison you know people always say well there's all these out women on the on the women's team why can't that be the case with the men's team because i i always view them as somebody who's now tried to dive into this issue more you have to separate this the sports i think you can't mm -hmm. view it as just soccer i think women's sports in general there are so many different cultural factors so many different societal influences and yeah. so many different stereotypes arguably that play into it compared to the men's game and that's why we see these very differences but it's not as if Megan Rapino doing what she's doing isn't you know creating that awareness like the ground was laid long before her to do what she's doing and obviously I yeah know, for sure you know she's she's able to and again I'm never going to complain when Megan Rapino and Sue Bird are out there doing what they're doing I think we don't appreciate how great that is enough you know mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> you know what I mean we always talk about, you know, sports power couples. I'm like, wait a minute. We have the definitive sports power couple over here. Why aren't <laughs> we talking about this enough? You know? Yeah, for sure. And now we are at a point where, you know, the out women are really the defining force of the team in a way that, I mean, is so unique to them, right? 
And that's, yeah. and that's why I think this team is so fascinating, not just because they win and they win in so often dominant fashion and they set the pace for the entire sport around the world, but because it is the, these incredibly powerful out women that often dominate the discussion and are stars. And, I, and I, even in the WNBA where there's an amazing number of out players who are doing amazing things, it isn't something like, you know, where the star of the team is probably one of the most recognizable out people on earth which is something that the more you think about it, the more you are just amazed by that, right? And, mm-hmm. and somebody who obviously knows Megan really well, you know, that defines, she embraces it in a way that I, I don't think other athletes, even to this point, have embraced it yet. It's, it's truly incredible in, in ways that, you know, you have to think about it for it to be absorbed. And I guess I, I think about it now as, you know, she's, she's almost at the end of her playing days, which is crazy to think, like, it feels like she's a force of gravity. It's like it's always there. Yeah. Well, I also think, too, that just comes down to the fact that, like, you know, queer, gay or not, um, you have to be comfortable in the limelight, and that has to be kind of your calling. And for Megan, it happens to be. So she's using that platform that serves um, all of us so well, right? And so – and that's not the path for everybody. And so – but when that's um, – when that's what you're being asked to do and that works for you, then it's great. And like, I think that's one thing that is so mesmerizing and captivating about Megan and why she can um, rally so many people up together is because um, she does it in a very smart and strategic and thoughtful way and also has that platform to be able to do it. So for your own journey, you, of course, played at the University of Virginia. I was going to not mention that because I went to Maryland, and I guess I'm not supposed to. <laughs> Penn State and Virginia here with Joanna and you. Ugh. I had to pick those <laughs> two schools. I mean, next up, it's going to be Duke, and I'm going to have to swallow my tongue. It's great. you know. <laughs> and then you start to get to where you get to. Did you have a moment um, where you're like, oh, wow, I made it? I, I can do this? I mean, you always talk earlier about the, the drive you had. I always wanted to be on the national team and you're of course in college as the 99ers are doing what they're doing. And Joanna Loman has a similar story where how, how driven that made her and everybody around her, you know, did you have a moment where you're like, man, I made it. Did you, did you, is there one particular moment or does it happen over an accumulation of time? Like in terms of soccer specifically? Yeah, soccer. Or... And I guess also as an out woman, we could talk about that later. But first in terms of just like, yeah, I can do this. I am a national team player. I am playing for the same team that Mia Hamm played for and Brianna Scurry played for and these amazing, you know, that kind of moment. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that was such a goal of mine. It was such a drive throughout my career that I probably had that inside of me even as early as a freshman year in, in, in high school where I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I mean, early on I had a VHS set of like the 91 women's world cup and that my dad had bought me and I'm like, yep, this is the team I want to play for. And there was a few like ebbs and flows. Like I quit soccer for, you know, six months, like my in middle school and stuff, but that's like a whole nother story. However, like from like really like I would say, yeah, my freshman year in high school, it was from then on, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I don't know if it's ever like, I think it's always in you to say to, you have doubts, but it's, in that at that level and at the highest level with the national team you have to have that belief in you because it's such it's so cutthroat there's so many ups and downs and there's so many people making decisions that are out of your um hands really so yes i always had that um, belief 
and but I don't know if there was anything that was I, I think there's always the fact that like yes I can play at this level right um, and I'm going to, to show that um, no doubt however like I said there's so many good players and as you mentioned we'll talk about the Olympic team coming up like there's so many good players it really just depends on sometimes what the coach sees and um, and, and what they're looking for in terms of choosing a team but um, of course, I had doubts in my, for myself, but I also had like a, a real deep belief that like this is what I'm meant to do. I want to play on this team. I'm going to play on this team, and I'm going to do whatever I can to make that happen and, and enjoy it as I go. Yeah, and you're on a, you're on a World Cup team too. I mean, you can't you can't, you can't <laughs> yeah. take anything away from that. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, no. I mean, listen, that, those were highlights, right? I mean, it's never. Um, you know, there, there's so many moments that like people, I could never relate to anybody else that, that unless you're with the team, right. And like what it means to play on that team and what it means to play in a world cup and Olympics and with the players I did it with. I mean, there's so many behind the scenes moments that are hilarious and fun and like you're crying at the same time. And, um, but yeah, I mean, playing at the world cup and Olympics, just like a dream come true. It's amazing. So I have to derail this slightly cause we need to talk about, two particular games that you were, well, you were in the squad for. The first of which is that, that as I, we watch another major tournament, I'm brought back to that quarterfinal against Brazil, which, I mean, is still one of the craziest games I've ever seen. <laughs> the way that. it ended, like, I remember where I was and how I was watching that. It was the first women's tournament I watched. And, you know, I, and I was into it. I was still young. I was still kind of new into this, into the sport in general. And I was... It was crazy. I mean, what a what a great way to be introduced to you know the women's game is that game. Do you have any yeah. memories of that game? Uh, do I? Share? Wait, what do you mean? Do I? Yes, yeah, I mean I that mean, game. Well, how many can you down. tell that you that we <laughs> we have time to tell? I think <laughs> uh, the only thing I'll say really is um, how um, one. I think that was the def has been one of the major defining moments. Uh, in, in women's soccer, particularly in the U.S. And, and I'll say this briefly, and then I'll talk about the game specifically. Um, leading up to that World Cup, there had always been like ebbs and flows of, you know, excitement around the World Cup and Olympics, dating back to even like Julie Foudy, Brandi Chastain, Manham Daves, right? Like every four years, you'd get excited, fans would get excited, and there would be a lull. And, um, and then they'd get excited again and get excited and then there'd be a lull. And so and we'd experienced the same stuff. And then in 2011, we played two, a send-off match versus Mexico at Red Bull Arena before we were heading over to Germany. And there's only about 5,000 fans, which was very bizarre in general. And then we were also kind of like, okay, do they, I guess people are not knowing that we're about to go to the World Cup, which is bizarre for this team. Um, and then we get to Germany and you could, and Germany put on an unbelievable tournament. I think to this day, one of the best World Cups that have been put on. And, um, you know, we started, so there was so much excitement in Germany to begin with, but um, ESPN had the World Cup and to have the excitement around, you could start to feel, we could start to feel over in Germany, the excitement build back here in the US. And um, partially that had to do with like, NBA had just finished, um, I think, uh, Major League Baseball had gone on strike. So it was like the perfect like storm in terms of people to be like, okay, well, I'm turning on ESPN and here we go. Here's this Women's World Cup. And we, um, 
get to the quarterfinals against Brazil. We're about to be one of the first U.S. teams out ever early in the in the um, knockout rounds. Um, and then I was actually supposed to play the entire second half, but Rachel Bueller got a red card. The whole plan went out the window. I warmed up for almost like 90 minutes when you include the overtime because they were like, just stay ready. So did Becky Sauerbrunn. And um, I do remember in the game, um, you know, you have the sideboards that change for the sponsors, right? Um, that are like swap every like few seconds or every minute or so with the sponsors. And so we're over there, Becky Sauerbrunn and I are over there warming up forever. And, you know, we're, we're like emotionally drained at this point in time because we've gone down to 10. Game is like, um, tied. We go into overtime. Mark scores in overtime. We're thinking we're this is this is done. And then um, all of a sudden, one of the sideboards flips. You know, I think I'm having a, a borderline like a little bit of a meltdown to Becky. And then the sideboard flips, and it says believe. And I'm like, never mind. Here we go. And then you know the whole sequence of it starting in the in our defensive half and then going out to Megan and the rest of the history when Megan sends the looping ball into Abby and then, you know, Abby scores and Allie Krieger finishes it off with the last penalty kick and we go on. Um, and ultimately, obviously we lost in the final to Japan, but that tournament because of like the perfect storm of everybody tuning in and watching, I would say has put women's soccer on the map. One of the reasons why we were able to propel into the NWSL so quickly. Yes, there's been some shaky years. However, um, the US, our U.S. Women's National Team, you know, this isn't quite right because there's been a, a few games that, like, the numbers haven't matched. But really, we have never played in front of fewer than 15,000 or fewer than 20,000 fans since then. I mean, it's just been gangbusters um, over the last decade. Um, since that tournament. I, I think about, you know, the 99 tournament and the penalty shootout against China as being the big introduction to women's soccer to the wider world. Like, this is it, mm -hmm. you know, right? And then, yeah. But it takes a while to cement it. And that, that game against Brazil sort of cemented it in many ways because there's always the patriotism aspect of it that plays in. Baseball wasn't on strike. It was just one of those boring, dull Junes in Major League Baseball where nothing happens, okay, uh, yeah. which happens all the time in Major League Baseball as, uh, as we're going through it right now, even though it's almost July. And then the following year is the Olympics, and then there's the Alex Morgan moment against Canada. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that, and, and then, like, and again, I've, since I started following the U.S. women's team, they have won more major tournaments than they've lost. You know, if I consider, like, 2010 a demarcation point, they've won two World Cups and a gold medal and lost in a final and a quarterfinal. So they're three and two in major tournaments. That's amazing. And that Alex Morgan game, again, I can, you can remember watching it and going, well, it sucked for Canada because of the way it happened. But again, that's like one of those defining moments in the Olympics where, you know, because of the patriotism aspect, in addition to everything we've talked about, yep. here you are. Like, and you're, you're in some part of, you know, two pretty iconic women's soccer moments and moments, I think, where you could say, all right, we've made it now. Or in some ways, it's like, okay, we have staying power. You know, this yes. is a moment that's cut through all this other noise, you know, cutting through the noise of an Olympics where this is one of the biggest attractions. Now in the 2021 Olympics, it's not just, you know, Simone Biles and, and the swimmers. It's like the U.S. women's team is one of the highlight events. Yeah. And that sure. everybody's going to watch. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, no doubt. And um, the fact that we start a little bit earlier 
um, in then the actual opening cer ceremonies, I think helps because people start to get um, interested earlier on. And yeah, there's just no doubt. I mean, the buzz around this team, the excitement around this team, be the first op really first, um, or not the first opportunity, but a really good opportunity for a team to look to try to win back to back first time ever in terms of World Cup to Olympics. And so uh, that is the goal for the U.S. Yeah, and I want to talk about that as we get to the end. But now I want to talk to you about broadcasting and being out in the booth, which is something that obviously is very close to my heart. Uh, what got you into broadcasting? And, you know, for some players, they don't need to do broadcasting because in some cases they don't need to do it because, you know, Meg Rapinoe's never going to have to broadcast to pay the rent, for instance. But for you, uh, what got you into it? And uh, what keeps you motivated to you know, keep doing it because you're really good at it? Well, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, you know, for me, when I retired, I had um, a lot of my success on the field had come from, like, my athletic performance in terms of staying healthy and the longevity I had in my career. So I was passionate about fitness and um, sport performance. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do afterwards. I'm going to be do work in the fitness industry, help young kids stay healthy. And I did that for about two years. And I just kind of realized throughout that process, like, okay, I love it. I love um, moving my body and, and finding joy in that and, and um, staying active post-playing career, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I have that knowledge, um, but it also wasn't something I thought I was going to buy into a few gyms at the time I had been living in D.C., and um, I just realized quickly that I didn't want to be a gym owner, and I didn't want to be in the gym all day, and I was feeling further I needed when I first retired to, to be a little bit of withdrawn from the game, um, but then after a couple of years, I'm like, okay, I'm a lot further away from the game than I, than I want to be, and... Kate Markgraf, the or Sabrera that some people would know her as, um, who's played on our women's national team, she's the current general manager of the U.S. team, um, had even right when I retired, she was like, you know, I think you'd be great in broadcast. You should give it a try. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm doing this whole other thing, as if I, I couldn't have done both or something, which is kind of hilarious to think back on. However, um, it was probably, I don't know, three years ago now, is yeah, that I was – going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro for to do a, a Guinness Book of World Record with 60 other um, women's soccer players to show that we still had a lot in terms of equality um, um, compared to the men's side uh, in women's sport. And so I was doing that. And in that time leading up to it, I was like, okay, I, I definitely need a change. I don't want to do the sport performance stuff anymore. I don't want to own a gym. I'm going to hike Kilimanjaro and then see what the deal is. And after that, I was like, you know what? Like, I I want to be involved in the game in, in a different way. I'm going to – I had Jill Lloyden, who is a goalkeeper for the U.S. Women's National Team and owns a, a goalkeeping academy outside Philadelphia, where I live now. And she she had, like, had some contacts, and so did Kate, and they were like, reach out to these people. So I did, and then one thing led to another. And um, – as anybody would know in terms of broadcast, like a lot of your first games are just hilarious because there's so much to television that people wouldn't, who are not involved in it have no clue. Anyway, all that to be said, um, I caught the bug right away. I loved it. It reminds me so much of playing. And what I don't think a lot of people understand either is it's very much a craft. So it feels like, okay, I'm at training every day. There's ways to get better even as you continue to improve there's like little subtleties of how you say things on air, how you um, 
make things more digestible for the viewer. So it's always an evolving process and, and I love it. And being a to be able to talk soccer, I could talk it all day and to be also be a part of a team that happens to be behind the camera now and sometimes in front of it is awesome. Like the people involved, I have thoroughly enjoyed. I love the excitement. And as we mentioned earlier, um, I did the Sporting KC and LAFC game and to be in front of 25,000 fans that are rocking and rolling for Sporting KC and just the high level of game it was, I mean, is is the freaking best. So I'm so grateful for the work it's and love it. Now we're talking about the things in broadcasting that people who are not in the business will never understand. Exactly. And it would be the most inside baseball conversation ever that would have been an interest to about three people. Us would be two of them because I, <laughs> That is, you know, again, I could talk about broadcasting all day. I love this industry. I, I've struggled in it, but the reason why I'm still going is because I love it. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, there's so much fun. Because in the end, I heard once Stuart Copeland, the drummer for the police, saying when he was playing, he just, it was a bodily function. He wasn't thinking. Right? Yeah. And I think when you're good in terms of, you know, as an athlete, at some point, you just, your basic instincts kicked in and you don't even need to think. It's just a, mm -hmm. it's just a reaction, right? And for me, and I think for a lot of other people who love this, it's like when you're good at broadcasting, it's just a reaction. It's just something that becomes second nature to you. Yep. And it just becomes, once you get the reps and you keep doing it, and now here you are, and again, it sounds like, again, you're a natural. You just, it sounds like you do this all the time, and it's very hard to sound like that on TV. It's very hard to sound like that consistently on TV, especially in a social media day where everybody hates everybody on television. You know, <laughs> so silly. It, it, it's true, but listen, people always say they don't want, you know, they don't care about broadcasters and then they say all the things they say on Twitter, but oh, you know, yeah, Twitter for reality. But I think, you know, for me, the other part of this discussion is there aren't many out people in the booth. You know, for you, you, you blazed the trail along with many others for being out playing, but there aren't many people who are out in the booth, you know, play by play or color. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's bizarre because it's, it's not. But, you know, as we see some of these great players retire and leave the game, some of them are going to go into coaching. Some of them will be around the game in different facets, but some of them will go into broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that some of them, we can increase the diversity of the booth because for all that has been good that has been done, it still kind of looks like me. You know, I'm an out, out proud bisexual man, but a lot of them look like me, you know, yeah. a bunch of white guys. So yep. I think the more we can have diversity in broadcasting, particularly in, you know, I think when you are somebody who is well-praised consistently, you know, those different perspectives are going to be very helpful in making us do a better job of talking about sports and having somebody like you who's in the booth doing a U.S. women's game. They're, they're, I mean, it's great when you have people like Julie Foudy doing it, obviously, and she's wonderful at her alley wagger, but when it's somebody like you who understands this team at a, and even at a different level, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the journey you've gone through and the journey that some of those other players go through, I think that adds something to a broadcast that you wouldn't get from them. And not as to say again that they couldn't add it, something great, but it's something different. No, and, and I completely agree. And I think that the more that we can have different voices, always the better, right? Because there's different experiences and, the, and that is part of the joy about broadcast too, is finding ways to bring your own personal stories without it turning into a me, me, me story about during the game. But, the you know, just bringing our different level of understanding and um, uh, to to the booth, which is which is so important. The variation in terms of um, 
the voice yet. I can't think. Maybe you know this better than me. I can't think of any time, because you've done it. I know there are out broadcasters out there, but I can't think of a time when there's been a play-by-play caller of entirely out people. I mean, it's wild to think if that's the case, and we need that if if it hasn't. So, like, whoever's listening, here we go. I'll do that tomorrow. (laughs) We we could do that tomorrow, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it could happen. I'd be totally down for that. I don't care. Give us a soccer game, people. Exactly. we we need to i think we need to you know to take that that next step in terms of again it's going to happen naturally as as we will open up more in sports to different experiences different people and more people are open you know about their experiences in life and telling their stories we'll get to more diversity in the booth it's going to happen naturally but i think again personally seeing people who are out and doing their thing and being able to do it at a high level for, again, multiple different networks in a span of about two weeks, you know, and different <laughs> yeah. games, right? Again, a women's national team game, an NWSL game, an MLS game. There's a lot of prep that goes into all of that, and it's very different prep. And to do it, and to do it really well and have it look seamless is a challenge that I don't think people fully get if you haven't done it before. Yeah, for sure. I don't think they do. Um, and also, I, I am like I said, so grateful for it and love it. And I welcome that challenge and the diversity that comes with the prep preparation as well. So, um, so many, all three of those games um, present different challenges and it's awesome. And first of all, I remember first of the, you did was a live stand. Well, it was taped, but it was a stand up on the field for that, for that uh, women's game against Nigeria. Again, people don't understand how hard that is. Oh, yeah. It's really tough. Again, it wasn't live. It was taped. I've been there. I've seen that before. But that is a tough thing to do, particularly it's your first time in a new stadium that nobody's been in. You've got a bunch of screaming fans off to your left, and you've got to focus. That is a yeah. lot harder than people think it is. <laughs> yeah, and I love that, though, because those are the parts, too, that remind me of playing, right? So just dialed in when the time comes and when, when you need to be on and – um, and as natural as possible, because that's really the the goal is just to enjoy it and be na- be our authentic selves, really, to bring that to the booth. That's what makes it so fun. And I think okay. and I think that's what makes it welcoming and enticing to the viewer as well. It it does, and I think that's one of the hardest things is to come off you know as authentic on air and not come off as a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. You know, those yeah. are stereotypical broadcaster things, and I think it's a lot harder. For people to recognize what the difference is as opposed to somebody like me who does it you know who i wish i did it more than i've done it uh in recent times but you know you get that sense of who's natural and, and who isn't and it, again it's hard to do it and that's why you see some people just say this isn't for me and i thought and i was talking to joanna loman about it she did some color on a, on a dc united game and did really well mm-hmm. and again it, 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 having a good personality is part of it and it's if you can translate it, it is a great skill and it takes a lot of honing just like playing. Right. Yeah. And again, I think that there, is there one part of broadcasting before we start to shift gears to talking a little bit about the Olympic team? Uh, is there one part of broadcasting that you would really like to show people just how difficult it is behind the scenes so people can understand it better? Cause there's times when I want to do that. When I see people talking about broadcasting that clearly don't know what it takes going on behind the scenes. Like, this is actually harder than you think it is. Is there one moment or one thing? 
I don't know if there's one moment or one thing, but I think for people that, you know, you're watching, it's, it's happening live. So to, well, yeah, actually there's one thing that comes to mind when I'm saying that is that it's not like we're just watching the game and then you're just talking about it, right? You have, there's so many people that go in behind the scenes. So we're obviously, if you're not on um, the stick mics when you're on camera, then you're on your headset and you have, you have directors and producers that are talking to you while maybe sometimes your play-by-play is talking while the game is going on. So there's like gajillion is a big word, but there are a lot of things that are going on while the game is happening as well to be able to show replays, to say, Hey, listen, let's go back and look at that goal again. They don't just magically appear on the, on, on, the viewer's television, right? All of that is being a story that's being told. And some of that is easier than other times. And I think particularly in the NWSL, which people don't understand is if you have a higher level game that's being on a, uh, on a major network, typically you could have 12 cameras that show so many different angles. You could have be live at the stadium, or even if you're not live at the stadium, you would have as a, myself as an analyst, a lot of different looks because I would have a monitor what the people at home are seeing. And then I'd also have another monitor that would show me the different looks and I could see the replays quicker than in an advanced way compared to what people are seeing at home. That's not always the case, right? Depending on how much the show costs, you might only have four cameras. So the production, that's more challenging then right? Because you only have so much available. So whereas everyone I think thinks that every show that's ever done is cost the same and that's, or you have the same amount of looks and the same. And so it's not. So I think that's really important when it comes to broadcast for people to understand. Um, and, um, and, and it doesn't mean that you need to give the broadcast or anybody leeway. Um, it's just a matter of like, there's so much like anything that goes into it behind the scenes that people don't understand. Again, it's a good team. It's like playing the good team. You're a midfielder yourself. You know yeah. what it takes to conduct a midfield that takes yeah. to conduct a broadcast. Exactly. Exactly. It's a good. It's a good metaphor that mm-hmm. we can, we get. So as we begin to wrap this up, I, again, I could talk to you about all these things for three hours, but we don't have that much time. Let's let's briefly talk about the upcoming Olympics. This this team that Vladko Andonovsky has picked. We'd be remiss if we didn't do that. I'm just looking at this team and the core of it. It's been around for a long time. And mm-hmm. just looking at that, that roster, I'm like, there might not be another major tournament after this for some of these, particularly, I mean, Carly Lloyd probably, yes. But I mean, for some of these, these players, like this could be their last major tournament. And the one thing that I always find amazing about the U.S. women's team is they have that elite mentality that you see Michael Jordan, right? I took that personally. You know, LeBron, Tiger Woods, like the elite athletes have where they could find something to motivate themselves even when you'd be like, wait, what's left for you to do? This, this team always has that. And don't deny the fact that this team is still pissed about 2016. I know they are. And so yeah. like the one thing that I'd be, I've always scared of the, the U S women in general, but I'm really scared of a motivated U S women's team. Yeah. I think they're, I think they're extremely motivated. And I think part of it being in that, you know, we might not have another run thing that could definitely be a part here too. Right. Yeah. That I mean, also I think is something extremely powerful. That's going to motivate them. For sure. And I think, you know, that I think the thing is, is we'd also be remiss if we didn't say, listen, this was not an easy decision. This is like, um, as we all, as the 
everything has been talked about on social media in terms of this is the deepest roster or group of players that I just had to pick from. And, and I would totally agree agree with that, especially just given the platform that NBSL has been given is has given players. Um, so I don't I'm not inside Blacko's um, notebook, I should say, or his his head to, to know exactly why he went off um, for some players versus others. However, Yes, I think this is a motivated team. I think when you think about how different this Olympics is going to look in terms of no fans, how quickly this tournament goes, I think it's sometimes what people forget. This is not a World Cup. This is not a development type where you can have 23 players on a roster and you can bring some young players to get them experience. Absolutely not. And there's three to four games between days. This is an intense um, tournament. It's two days between. It's more about rest and recovery and who can um, put the best out on that given day because you will not be at your best every game. And as we know how hot it's going to be in Tokyo, those um, that climate is going to make it even more challenging. And especially when you think about some teams like New Zealand who are in the U.S.'s bracket, who have not been together since March of 2020. So they are showing up 10 days before this tournament and are like, here we go. The core of them are. So... Uh, you know, I think there's motivation. I think there's an aspect of um, being together and having the luxury of playing together leading up to this tournament and playing in their pro league and a lot of players, even if they're on different club teams playing. But yeah, this is going to be a motivated team. And I think it's not easy um, to show up to a, a world championship event when you are used to having screaming fans and there's excitement around it and that's not going to be it. So it's going to be able to be who can internally motivate. And I think this is a good group for that. I do think that there's going to be some fans, but it's obviously not going to be, you know, full stadium. But the other thing that's interesting about this group and this team is like the 12 team Olympics means these are like in, in, in no offense to some of the teams that they would play in a 24 or 32 team world cup. Like they get warm up matches at times, right? Mm -hmm. Like no offense to the Thailands of the world or the Chile's of the world that they played in the last World Cup, but they get warm-up matches, basically, in, mm -hmm. that, in, in World Cups now. And that's just how good they are. In this tournament, it's Sweden, New Zealand, Australia, and all of them are good. And especially because they're playing a team in Sweden who they you know, lost on penalties to in a quarterfinal. And then third-place teams get through, but then, I mean, you're playing, again, somebody like uh, a third-place team in ERF. Like, that could be the Dutch you know, who they yeah. play in the final. That could be Canada, who they play all the time and has desperately wanted to beat them. You know, this is a really, really tough tournament. I oh, think it in is. many ways you could argue it's tougher teams. to win than, the, Olymp uh, than yeah. the World Cup at this point. Yeah, in some ways it is because there's 12 teams and everyone's good, as you just mentioned, the people that are in our, our group play. I mean, it's not easy. So it is about hit the ground running, build the momentum. That first game is so important. The U.S. will know that to get a good result and like I said to build the confidence and momentum it's it's fascinating because like this team can do so much and then yet they still find a way to do something even bigger you know mm -hmm. I still think that you know the one of the more impressive games was that that win against France like was that as we start to wrap this up was that the biggest game in the history of women's soccer that game against France at the Parc des Princes in the quarterfinals was like is that because like I was watching it I like this feels like the biggest game in the history of women's soccer. It <laughs> yeah. Final. It felt like it. 
Yeah, well, I just think how the game has grown so much. Obviously, France were one of the favorites playing, hosting the World Cup. So, yeah, I mean, I think you could, we could sit here and come up with some other rivals to that comment in terms of, okay, here's some other bigger games, right? But, yes, that was such an important win. Um, and to do it in the fashion they did in terms of, you know, there's moments – quite a few moments in that game where France was the better team. and um, But to, to upset um, the host country and, and then go on to ultimately win the tournament um, is, is, is massive because okay. to, to, okay. To, to win a World Cup in itself is so challenging and to do it the way that they did um, is, is impressive. And to give you an idea of how brutal the Olympics are, France aren't in the Olympics. Yep, exactly. That's that's how brutal this the, the women's Olympic tournament is. That's why I say I think in many ways it's harder to win than a World Cup. So as we wrap this up, again, could go on for hours. What's what's the biggest takeaway you've had from, from your your own personal journey that you, you'd like to impart on everybody who some of them may not have heard your story and might be hearing you for the first time? What's the biggest lesson you've learned through coming out and being yourself and being able to play at the highest level? as a player and now being a broadcaster at a high level and doing what you're doing and, and celebrating, you know, this new world we live in where there's just so many more people who are out and you can be on podcasts and talk about this freely and openly in a way that you couldn't years ago. What's the biggest lesson you've learned that you want to impart to everybody, particularly uh, those who are coming after us? Yeah, to, you know, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is just, um, you know, I know, understand that everyone's journey is different, um, but to be unapologetically you, right? Like it's, it's uh, like embrace it, have fun. It does get better. It's um, there's a, a wonderful community that um, will open, open their arms to um, people that are going to come out and, you know, have, have fun. I mean, it's like, you mentioned celebration. That's really what it is. It's like, enjoy it, um, use the voice that you have in any way. And that might be in your commu local community. That might be a bigger platform. Um, and, and enjoy, enjoy it. And I see this now, not just when we talk about this, but I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention too, cause it also happened early today. Uh, Emma Hayes, who's the coach Chelsea, the women's yeah. Well, so I have my opinions on Chelsea, but we'll, we'll hold them off for now. She was doing color on the, the Spain Croatia game in, in, uh, England and getting a lot of praise. So again, it, it, it's slow to change, but if it could, but if it's changing in stodgy England, it could change. Oh, it, for sure. it could be better. Like, as I said, I don't care if, if, if somebody's good at what they do, it doesn't really matter who their background is, you know, what their background is, who they are. If to me, I've always said that about this, the, the business we're in. Yeah. I, I, there is no, to me, there's never been a judgment on gender. If you can do it, you can do it. And yeah. It's all about how good you are in front of the camera, how good you are when, when the red light's on. Yeah, and for sure. I, I'm, I'm glad that we're starting to see that around the world. I just, and the thing that I always say is I want to be judged against people, not don't judge me based on the fact that I could break uh, down a barrier, check a box for you. Do it because I'm good at this and you, <laughs> and you can get that. And that's what I want, you know, in broadcasting. I think for all of us as, yeah. uh, as we start to grow this, you know, grow our presence. For sure. I completely and, agree. Where can people find you, Lori, on the social media? Yeah, um, across the board um, for Instagram and Twitter, Lori Lindsay, L-O-R-I-L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-6. And then um, 
kind of infrequent, but you can find me on Facebook still, just Lori Lindsay. And um, yeah, that's it. Really. Does anybody use Facebook still that aren't, you know, rough? I mean, bond? I have no clue, but um, we'll see. I mean, if somebody's messaged me, <laughs> we'll see <laughs> what the deal is. We'll find out again, Lori. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, and we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the conversation.